We've been in Psalm 9 the last two weeks, the end of the year and then the first Sunday of the new year. And it was a psalm to recount all the wonderful works of God. Psalm 10 pretty much continues on from this uh, and it's bent towards a different direction. So let me read it, uh, let me pray, and then we will start exploring the connection between Psalm 9 and Psalm 10 and what it means for us today. Psalm 10. Why, O Lord, do you stand far away? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? In arrogance, the wicked haltly pursue the poor. Let them be caught in the schemes that they have devised. For the wicked boast of the desires of his heart, and the one greedy for gain curses and renounces the Lord. In the pride of his face, the wicked does not seek him. All his thoughts are, there is no God. His ways prosper at all times. Your judgments are on high, out of his sight. As for all his foes, he puffs at them. He says in his heart, his heart I shall not be moved throughout all generation, generations. I shall not meet adversity. His mouth is filled with cursing and deceit and oppression. Under his tongue a mischief and iniquity. He sits in ambush in the villages. In hiding place, he murders the innocent. His eyes stealthily watch for the helpless. He lurks in ambush like a lion in its thicket. He lurks that he may seize the poor. He seizes the poor when he draws him into his net. The helpless are crushed, sink down and fall by his might. He says in his heart, God has forgotten. He has hidden his face. He will never see. Arise, O Lord. O God, lift up your hand. Forget not the afflicted. Why does the wicked renounce God and say in his heart, you will not call to account, but you do see, for you note mischief and vexation, that you may take it into your hands. To you, the helpless commits himself. You have been the helper of the fatherless. Break the arm of the wicked and the evildoer. Call his wickedness to account till you find none. The Lord is king forever and ever. The nations perish from his, his land. O Lord, you hear the desire of the afflicted. You will strengthen their heart. You will incline your ear to you to, to do justice to the fatherless and the oppressed so that man who is of the earth may strike terror no more. Let's pray. Father, your word is an everlasting word. It goes beyond generation from generation. It is always a word that is ready to convict, to encourage, to teach, to train. And Lord, we turn to passages like this and they are weighty and heavy. And Lord, they need grace. And we need to look at Christ as we reflect on these words. And we need to understand our identity, how it's firmly fixed in you, Lord. How our righteousness does not come through our own deeds, but through 
Christ and his merit and his goodness and his holiness and his righteousness. Father, as we look at the wicked, as we think of your holiness, give us minds to comprehend the weight of your glory and the holiness that is on display in your word and give us eyes to see the depravity that is in the heart of man and the infinite distance that is between you and us in standard of holiness. Give us hearts and minds that are humble to comprehend the intensity of this word. Let us go forth in a culture that renounces you, in a time that ignores you, in a time that humanizes you, and preach the truth, the truth of a sinful people and a good and holy God who will judge and salvation through Christ and Christ alone. Be with us, Lord. Glorify your name. Let this be worship for you, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. As I said, we spent two weeks in Psalm 9, and Psalm 9 was recounting the wonderful deeds of the Lord. And we said that it was the key to the door of being sorrowful, yet always rejoicing, the theme throughout the New Testament, that we can worship and rejoice in the midst of affliction because we know the God who is always in victory. We may feel as if we are falling. We may feel as if the world is crumbling. We may feel like we are losing, but God is winning. Every suffering, every bit of brokenness, every bit of evil is being purposed and planned in order to achieve God's great ultimate goal of having a people for himself, a redeemed people for himself. We see it so clearly at the end of Genesis with Joseph, who is sold into slavery by his brothers, and God uses that evil for good and to protect his people who become Israel. So as we think about being sorrowful yet always rejoicing, we must remember to recount the wonderful works of God. And as David so deliberately did in Psalm 9, he kept coming back in the midst of his suffering to say, God is on his throne forever and ever. God is enthroned in Zion. A great reminder for us to hold on to in the midst of hard seasons. Yet now we come to Psalm 10, and in your Bible, it probably has a title. Mine says, Why Do You Hide Yourself? Which I wonder why they put in there. Because that is one line in the whole of the psalm. And the psalm is very much about the wicked and God being the judge of all of the world. But what we know is that this psalm has no title. Many of the titles you read in, in the Psalms are, are actually there from the old uh, the Hebrew literature, but this psalm itself had no title and was very much connected to Psalm 9. It's almost as if these psalms are one and the same. They follow a pattern. Now, if we look to the end of Psalm 9, that last verse says, Put them in fear, O Lord. Let the nations know they are but men. 
and then it pauses. You see that word sailor, to pause and reflect, to ponder. And then we go on to this Psalm, Psalm 10, which speaks about these men, nations. When we see men in scripture, we're speaking of mankind. We're not speaking of men on their own, men and women. And we see so clearly that this follows on from this group, this nation. And the psalmist is desperately wanting to see this nation, these men humbled before God, to know their place. Now, we live in a time where our preaching has somewhat become watered down. We become passive and PC about the way we teach the difference between God and man. And there's not a clearer passage in all of Scripture than Psalm 10 to show us that God is incredibly different to us. God is holy, infinitely holy. And we see that pointed out through all of Scripture. We could say God is good, infinitely good. And that is a great problem for mankind because mankind is wicked, infinitely wicked. In our culture today, we preach a message that is about mankind being neutral, mankind being similar to God. But as we read the scriptures, as we think about the weight of this passage, we are drawn to realize the separation between God and man in which only Christ can bridge. So we must hold attention here. I don't want anyone who is in Christ today walking away feeling condemned. For those who are in Christ, they should walk away feeling uh, lifted up because we sit in the position of the writer of this psalm who sits in the position of saying, I know God. I've seen his holiness. I know I am not worthy of him. I don't sit in the pride like the wicked sit in the pride. I've been humble. And Christ has bridged the infinite distance that we could never bridge. He has bridged it on our behalf. So if you are in Christ and you live in repentance and belief in Christ, sit in the position of the writer reflecting on the brokenness of the world. Longing for judgment. Longing for the Lord to bring his final decisions upon this world longing to be separated the wicked from the righteous the sheep from the goats but if you sit in the position of the arrogant my longing is that you will feel the weight of judgment that is upon you that you will feel your feet heading towards eternal condemnation and that you will come to a place of repentance and belief in the Lord Jesus, who's the only one that can bridge the infinite gap between your depravity and God's holiness. I want you to think for a moment, and this is pure imagery. I don't believe this is exactly how things will unfold on the judgment day. I want you to think for a moment of a weighty image. It's judgment day and you stand before Christ, the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, whatever that looks like. We imagine what he looks like and we're standing before him and he is separating his children, the righteous, from the wicked. And 
on that day, your unrepentant child, an adult child, your unrepentant child is separated from you and sent off to hell. How will you respond? Well, the Bible tells us you'll respond in worship. You will worship on the day when God separates the wicked from the righteous. You will worship in that moment because you will clearly see the holiness of God and the sinfulness of your child, and you will applaud that justice has been served. We will feel all the more in the end times the glory and the holiness of the Lord and our own depravity and the weight of grace when we stand before him. I give you that image. It's a weighty image because I want us to feel the intensity of wickedness and the beauty of God's holiness and how blasphemous it is that we do not bow to his name and that the nations do not bow to his name and they do not honor him as Lord and give him all of their life, that they do not love him with all their heart, mind, soul, and strength, as we see so clearly in this passage. So the psalm... The psalmist, the writer, probably David, as it follows on from Psalm 9, writes, oh, Why, O oh Lord? Why, O oh Lord, do you stand far off? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? Now, the psalmist often writes this question, and he often writes us about different reasons. Right now, we see the reason that he is writing it is about the day-to-day evil that man brings to this world that sinful, wicked, evil men bring to this world. We could, we could say this about sickness. We could say this about natural disasters. But right now in this passage, the context is not about the sickness of the world. It's not about the natural disasters that plague us. It is about the wickedness of man and the trouble they bring. Because much of the evil that we experience is from the hands of one another. It's from the hands of men and women who don't worship God. And the psalmist is questioning God and and longing for the day when God will stop men from running amok. When will you judge? When will you bring this to an end? When will you finally call them to account? And that is the question he goes on to ponder. As he prays to the Lord and recounts the wickedness of men. And he starts in verse 2. And he goes to verse 11. And he states a gathering of, or as if, he he gives us a picture as if all wickedness has been summed up in one person. Let me start in verse 2, and then we'll explain that phrase. In arrogance, the wicked hotly pursue the poor. Let them be caught in the schemes that they have devised. The first first thing we note is that the wicked act out of a place of arrogance, an attitude that thinks that they are better. They think much of themselves. They know that they've got uh, some good things going on in themselves. So the difference, first of all, that we see between the writer or the Christian, us, who believe and repent consistently and trust in the Lord Jesus, is that they are arrogant and self-assured. I have good enough deeds. I am worthy of God's honor. There's an arrogance in them, a pride 
And they continue on in their acts of arrogance and they live in this state. But what we see the psalmist saying in himself is he believes he's not like them. This is significant. And it's all the way through the psalms. Because we would say that we believe in total depravity at this church. That means every single person is depraved and cannot call on the name of the Lord unless the Lord enables them. But as we spoke about a couple of weeks ago, David was a man after God's own heart. Why was he righteous? Because of faith. Faith in the Lord Jesus. Faith in his descendant, his Lord that would sit on the throne. The same salvation means is for us and the Old Testament. Uh, the Old Testament heroes, if you want to use that term. Abraham was saved by faith. Faith in who? Faith in Christ, the coming Messiah who would give them righteousness. A righteousness that was not their own. And the scriptures, the Old Testament scriptures go out of their way to show us that they are failures. Abraham, a liar and a cheat. David, an adulterer, a a murderer. Yet, David refers to himself as righteous. He had a firm fix of his identity, a confidence in the fact that he would be saved through his heir, that he would be saved through Jesus, the one who would die and conquer sin and fulfill the law and conquer death. So David stands separate from the arrogant, separate from the prideful, and he stands saying, these people who stand in their pride, who stand in their arrogance, who do not repent, who do not follow the Lord, they're different to me. That's the separation between the church and the world. And church, we stand in Psalm 9, we stand in Psalm 10 as the writer who ponders the world and its brokenness, who looks outward and says, look at the arrogant, they hotly pursue the poor. We stand as people who are fixed in our identity in Christ, who say, I'm different to them because I have an acknowledgement of the Lord. Our world is not much different to David's world. We know this arrogant people, a people who stand in their works, stand in their self-obsession. And if we wanted to think of them pursuing the poor, we see that it's the rich that get richer. We've heard that saying. Money sharks that plague areas like Hamilton South and give people loans that have high, high interest. We see the arrogance of these people that prey on the weakest. But what's the psalmist say? Let them be caught in their schemes that they have devised. Much like back in Psalm 9 in verse 15 and 16, that says the nations have sunk in the pit that they have made. In the net they have hid their, uh, they have hid their own foot has been caught. We looked at Romans 1 that says God has handed us over to the desires of our heart. David in his psalm here prays or turns to God and says, this arrogant people, this wicked people that do not pursue you and do not bow down to you, Lord, let them be caught in their own schemes. Let their sinfulness and their own attitude be the end of them and draw them to their own condemnation. In verse 3, he continues to look at this pride and arrogance of the wicked 
And he says, for the wicked boast of their desires of his soul. And the one greedy for gain curses and renounces the Lord. The arrogant, the wicked person brags about their sinful heart. We know this. We've seen this in our world today. We have platforms for this to take place. It's called Facebook and Instagram, where we put up a highlight reel of our lives. And we show off all that we are doing and all that we desire and all that we want in our lives. The arrogant, the wicked, boast about their sinful desires. The righteous, the ones who are in Christ, boast about their weakness. We boast in our weakness. What other psalm does David write? Psalm 51. Cleanse me, O Lord. I've sinned against you and you alone. Make me white as snow. The difference between David and the wicked is, is not that they have, not that David is sinless, but he's repentant. He doesn't stand in his pride and say, I love what I want. And what I want is good. Of course, the one who boasts, their soul will chase after what their, their desires are. They're limited to this small and puny desires of this world. And God wants so much more for them. As Jesus said, you cannot serve two masters. You'll either love one and hate the other. They're greedy for gain and they renounce the Lord. They cannot honor the Lord while chasing after the desires of their heart. Tongue-tied. They boast in their desires. And if they're boasting in their desires, there's no place for God. There is no place for God. We get images of Pharaoh and Nebuchadnezzar in this phrase here as they stand in their nation and go, look at the work of my hands. Look at the work of my hands. And we know that Pharaoh is destroyed and Egypt is decimated. And many centuries later, Nebuchadnezzar stands in his tower and claims divinity and claims success. And God humbles him by turning him into an animal. Not literally, but acting like an animal. For, for a, a period of seven times, he is acting like an animal and he rises to worship the one true God. And he says, God will humble the proud. God will humble the proud. He will either humble them in this life. He will definitely humble them at judgment. In pride of face, verse 4, the wicked does not seek him. All their thoughts are, there is no God. So what we're seeing is this wicked person being summed up, or the, the wicked nations being summed up as if they were one person. If all <coughs> wickedness had been put into one person, what would that look like? What would a heart out of control and desires look like? Well, they would be proud in their face. They would, they would seek themselves and themselves alone. All their thoughts are, I'm greater than God, or there is no God. Just like the kings of the past, like Pharaoh and Nebuchadnezzar, bragging that they need no God, for they themselves have great success in their own disciplines and abilities. They think how good they are. They brag about their own skills. But we know that everything is a gift from God. One of the arguments I used to have with guys at work was 
often them bragging about them being successful. And I'm like, what makes any of us successful? None of us choose to be, had, had control over where we were born. You didn't get to decide that you were going to be born in the free country of Australia that never gets attacked by anything. Even COVID's barely touching us. We're so protected in Australia. Everything is a gift. The reason that we can be successful today is because we have had opportunities for success. I think of the uh, the Athenians in Acts 17 where Paul is going to them and they say that they spend their time teaching and being taught. They spend their time just sort of bragging about what they know. Paul steps in and teaches them about the unknown God and he says, in verses 24 and 25, the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is served by humans, human hands, as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. How's that for humbling? To the arrogance of the intelligent Greeks, as they sit there and brag about all they know, Paul just says, your life, your breath, your everything is God's. He gave it to you. But the wicked take what is God's and brag about it as if they did it themselves. Brag about it as if they themselves became successful on their own. Verse 5, he says, His ways prosper at all times. Your judgments are on high. Out of his sight, as for all his foes, he puffs at them. The next section really shows the downfall of the prideful, wicked person. The prideful, wicked person is summed up as someone who is confident in their prospering. They think they're just going to succeed all the time. Nothing is ever going to stop me. They think their judgments are right. They stand before their foes. They have confidence. Now, maybe you can't relate to all this. Because I don't think we are all have all this going on in our life, even before Christ. For many of us, For many of us, we would realize that we have been disciplined, corrected. Our life has been formed and shaped by people who have wanted to train us in some sort of morality, whether it was Christian or just being a decent person in this world. Now, of course, like I said before, this is a summary of wickedness as if it was in one person. But as we look at this person, we can see glimpses of us, right? We can see glimpses of our own pride or our own arrogance. We can definitely see glimpses of our life before Christ. Self-confidence, self-obsession. Luke 16 tells us of a a guy much like this, two, two men, the rich man who has no name and Lazarus, the poor man, not Lazarus who died, a different Lazarus. And we see the rich man have everything and prosper. He lives a good life to the day he dies. He does not suffer. He's the epitome of this guy. 
prospers all his times. And then finally, he stands in judgment before God and is condemned. And it says there is an abyss set before them, separating Lazarus and the rich man. And the rich man calls to Abraham and says, Abraham, send, send Lazarus down that he may refresh me. And he says, it's impossible. We cannot. I'm paraphrasing. I'm not quoting this word for word. And the rich man then says, we'll send Lazarus back to my brothers. For I have brothers that are still alive that they may come and repent. And Abraham says, they've got the prophets and they've got the word. If they do not repent, they won't repent even if someone rose from the dead. The pride of the arrogant, the hardness of their heart, is that they may prosper all their life and never come to repentance. They could even see miraculous works like the Pharisees did. The Pharisees saw Lazarus come out of the tomb. The Pharisees saw the resurrected Jesus, and many of them, stuck in their stubbornness, did not repent. Verses 6 to 10 see this spiral of evilness in the the heart of the proud, self-obsessed person go out of control. Let me read these five verses and make some comments. It says, He says in his heart, I shall not be moved throughout all generations. I shall not meet adversity. His mouth is filled with cursing, deceit and oppression. Under his tongue are mischief and iniquity. He sits in ambush in the villages. In hiding places, he murders the innocent. His eyes stealthily watch for the helpless. He lurks in ambush like a lion in the thicket. He lurks that he may seize the poor. He seizes the poor when he draws him into his net. The helpless are crushed, sink down and fall by his might. This is a man out of control. This is a person whose proud self-obsession has sent them out of control. They are dominating everyone. As I said, you might not be able to relate to all this, but there are some things we can relate to. If your life was unchecked, if your life was undisciplined, where would you be? If you had no correction whatsoever, no moral compass, what would your life look like? I can tell you with absolute confidence that you would not want to know me if I continued as the 18-year-old before Christ. You would not want to talk to me. I was selfish. I was hateful. I was angry. And it was only because Jesus opened my eyes to his holiness and my depravity that I was able to be humbled. We would spiral out of control if Jesus did not bridge the infinite gap between his holiness and our depravity. And we see it in this wicked man, or the summary of the wicked, a man left unchecked or uncontrolled. We should praise God. We should praise God that because of the influence of the gospel, there is a greater justice system than there was even 100 years ago, 500 years ago. You think about today. Go out there and try and commit a crime and get away with it. It's very hard these days because 
Christianity has had influence in the world. God's justice has had influence in the world and now crimes are harder to commit and get away with. God's justice is being formed in the world and he will have complete justice. Now, I'm not saying the justice system is perfect. There's corruption in it, but I'm saying it's better. It's increasing. It's growing. It's changing because Christians are having influence in the world. If the world was left unchecked, we would be much like this person who is looking to gain at any cost. In verse 11, we see the last line of the summary of the wicked and we turn to a call to God in verse 12. He says in his heart, God has forgotten. He has hidden his face. He will never see it. The prideful of heart either lead to a state who believe there is no God and that humans are the ultimate moral compass in the world and the ultimate being of the world, or the other end of that scale is that we're nothing and we're just, I don't know, whatever those atheists say. Yeah. Or that God is mute and not interested in this world. That there is a God, there is a higher power, but he's separate from the world and just left the world spinning out of control. We hear the great phrase of so many people that God, that we are just human. You can't expect much more of me. I'm just human. So we put God in this status of being just tolerant of sin, okay with it. That God's fine to let wickedness prevail in the world because we're just human and he doesn't expect anything more of us. If wickedness is summed up in this one person in Psalm 10, we're seeing wickedness goes to a place of no God or wickedness goes to a place of God doesn't care and I'll do whatever I want because he's not going to judge me. Even that sticky you see on cars, only God can judge me, is a brag that God is going to let them off for their sin. God will judge them more harshly than mankind is going to judge. Judge them. But as we look and conclude with this wickedness, we must weigh in tension the good person, the nice person. I've got a neighbor. He's a good guy. He's a good dad. He's a good father. All around nice guy. But he has a major, major problem. God is not his Lord. God is not his king. He's not fitting really the category of all this. He's not waiting to mug someone. He's not acting like a lion trying to rip the poor off. He's a, he's a good dude. You'd look at his life and he's say he's, he's doing the right things. He's just trying to provide for his family. But he has a major problem. His pride gets in the way of him bowing to the Lord. He does not worship him. He does not love him with all his heart, mind, soul, and strength. He does not father his children for the glory of God. He does not be a husband to his wife for the glory of God. He does not work for the glory of God. So his great problem and his great wickedness is that he does not worship the holy God whom he should. So I'm not saying as we read this that everyone is summed up in this category. 
But as we read this passage and as David looks at the world, he's seeing a world that is out of control and left unchecked, their wickedness would turn into chaos. We see it at times in our, in our nation or around the world when things go out of control, when pandemics hit and we become selfish and people are fighting in shops over toilet paper, when presidents are elected that we don't like and we riot and people are killed. There is wickedness in all of us that if pushed in the right direction, it may come out. But thank God for the Lord Jesus who has given us his Holy Spirit, refining and correcting and convicting his church of sin. That when we are convicted, we would come to repentance. But there's still the wicked out there. And in David's day, as nations were pushed and famines were were plaguing the world, wars were happening, evilness in people was revealed, which I would believe that would take place in our nation or in nations that surround us if they were pushed in the right direction. When their life was threatened, when their comfort was threatened, even to the point of not having toilet paper, evilness is revealed. It shows the wickedness of people. So what is our response as the writer of the psalm, as those who know that they are righteous in the Lord? We call to the Lord. Verse 12, arise, O Lord, reflecting his verse one and his verse one. Why, O Lord, are you far off? We call to the Lord, come, let your kingdom come, as the Lord Jesus taught us to pray. Arise, O God, lift up your hand, forget not the afflicted, forget not your church which he won't, as David goes on to remind us, as we recount his wonderful deeds, we are reminded that he will not. We are the ones who call. We are the ones who call to Christ and and trust in his righteousness and want justice for the world. We want true justice. As verse 13 to 15 says, why does the wicked renounce God? Why do they say in their heart, you are not You will not call us to account, but you do see. For you know mischief and vexation that you may take it into your hands. To you the helpless commits himself. You have been the helper of the fatherless. And here's a line for you. How often do you pray this? Break the arm of the wicked and evildoer. Call his wickedness to account till you find none. What a prayer. The wicked's arm would be broken, that their life would be called to account. The redeemed in Christ hate. And in our culture that is so. And has the 11th commandment of being nice to everyone misses Christ's attitude to the self-obsessed, prideful, wicked people. Think about Christ for a moment. As he goes into the temple and see his father's house being used for trade and abusing and ripping people off for their sacrificial system. Think about Matthew 23 
where Jesus stands before the self-righteous Pharisees and Sadducees and condemns them with the seven woes. He wasn't nice. He was harsh. Now, let me clarify. I'm not so. We need to be discerning. We need to be wise, shrewd as snakes, as Jesus says to his disciples when sending them out. There are times when a harsher rebuke is necessary for the self-righteous. There are times when we must be firm and clear that they are outside the Lord. They are outside his righteousness, that they are running headlong into the gates of hell. We need to be reminded that hell is a reality, that God's holiness is a reality, and our depravity is a reality. And the world, if they do not repent and trust in Jesus and love him with all their heart, mind, soul, and strength, which is only possible through the power of the Holy Spirit, they will end up judged and condemned and in eternal condemnation. Would we, as the children of God, hate the wickedness like he hates wickedness? And would our prayer echo the prayer of David and say, break the arm of the wicked, call them to account, Lord? But would our prayer be followed by bold preaching that says there is hope in Jesus? There is salvation in Jesus. Your good works are nothing. Your good deeds cannot save you. You aren't wise enough. You aren't strong enough. You aren't holy enough. But Jesus alone will die in your place or has died in your place, has defeated death, and his righteousness is yours. His status of son is yours. You have an inheritance in him. If you repent and believe, you will have the gift of the Holy Spirit that will seal you forever passion for the jealousy that God has for his name. Have you noticed that? Throughout the Old Testament, God is jealous for his name. Would we be jealous for his name? Would we echo the words of Jeremiah and say, I'm burning within me to let out the word of God? It hurts to keep it in. It's painful to suppress it. Would we have the passion like Jesus, zeal for my father's house consumes me? Not a physical temple, but the church being built up as one, as the new temple of God. We are to go forth and extend the boundaries of the temple, to the, extend the dwelling place of God. And we are to go forth into the wicked, those that are like this, those that could be, if pushed in the right direction, harsh and violent and abusive. Of course, we live in Australia and people are comfortable. We're not treated like this. We're not really seeing this wickedness. We're seeing the proud and the arrogant. We see that, but we're not seeing people lurking to take advantage of the poor or the weak. So David sums up his psalm, finishing Psalm 9 and 10. The Lord is king forever. How often has he done that? Maybe he doesn't have answers to the why. Why, Lord, are you so far off? Why are you not around in troubled times? Well, why does it feel? Because he is around. Why does it feel that you're not around in troubled times? He recounts the wonderful works of God. The Lord is king forever and ever, and the nations will perish from his land. There'll be one nation 
a holy nation, the bride of Christ, those who repent and believe in the Lord Jesus. O Lord, verse 17, you hear the desire of the afflicted. You will strengthen their heart. You will incline your ear to do justice to the fatherless and the oppressed so that man who is of the earth may strike terror no more. There is a great victory cry at the end. David now turns to worship. If we reflect on that image in the beginning, a wicked child, an unrepentant child condemned to hell, there would be worship. The church will worship when the wicked are judged. The church will praise God when he sends the wicked, those rebellious, blasphemous nations, and sends them out of the land, the land of the living, the land of the new heavens and the new earth, the new Jerusalem, God's reigning. Christ is on the throne. And he inclines his ear he strengthens our hearts. We are the fatherless. We are the pre- We are the fatherless. We are, or we were the fatherless. We were the oppressed. But in Christ, we have a father, a heavenly father. And he will strike terror. He will strike the earth that they will have no terror no more. Isn't that a picture of the future? Church, we should be encouraged by a psalm like this as we sit in the position of the writer who calls to God in our righteousness. Yes, our righteousness, because it's been claimed for us in Christ. We don't boast in it. We don't brag in it. We humbly accept it by God's grace. We thank him morning after morning, day after day, moment after moment. Thank you, Lord, for the righteousness that I have in Christ. I cannot boast in anything but my weakness. We are different to the world. We stand out from the world. We speak truth to the world. Truth. Absolute truth. And the truth is they are running towards judgment. A judgment that is eternal. A judgment that is forever. A judgment that will not be pardoned unless they are in Christ and Christ alone. God will have his victory. Christ is on his throne now and forever. And they will strike terror no more on this earth. Let me pray for us. Holy Father, thank you. Thank you that we are in Christ. Thank you that we as your children are able to see, see the glory of your holiness, to see, to see your goodness. Thank you that because of Christ we sit as those who have been humbled, as those who have been made righteous. And Lord, we look at this world, a world that is in trouble, a world that is hurting. And Lord, we long for you to come. 
But we know, Lord, you're having victory. We know, Lord, even in the darkest places at this moment, you've got a purpose playing out. That what man means for evil, you mean for good. You're doing something. You're doing something that will last forever. Your ear is close to us. You hear our prayers. Father, we know that judgment will come on this earth. But Lord, while we wait, while we wait, would we be strengthened as we pray? Would we be strengthened as we repent? Would we always remain humble? And would we preach boldly to the arrogant and the wicked? Whether they look like good people or nice people, Lord, until they have you as Lord, until they repent, until they have humility, Lord, it is not enough. Their goodness, their niceness is not enough until you are the cause of their goodness, until you are the reason they long to be a good father or a good mother or a good person or whatever their status may be. Arise, O Lord. Arise. Bring conviction to this place, this little suburb, our surrounding suburbs. Bring conviction and repentance. Herald your message through your church that they may be warned, that they may be invited. Lord, that the gospel of power may bring salvation. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.